0: Good morning. Good afternoon. Good evening, everybody. Welcome to episode number three of push dose EMS brought to you by Milwaukee County Office of Emergency Management. My name is Jeff match. I'll be your host today. I am your director or your clinical education and quality assurance manager uh, with the offices. Joining me today uh, is a group of folks you've heard from before. If you listen to our previous podcast. Uh, no particular order going down my screen. I am joined by Dr. Tom Engel. Welcome, Dr. Engel. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, with us as well, QA supervisor, longtime paramedic for the county, uh, Linda Matrish. Welcome, Linda.
1: Good afternoon, everybody.
0: And Dr. Engel's counterpart in the fellowship program. Um, Another one of our physicians, Dr. Patrick Sinclair. Welcome, Patrick. Hello, everybody. And the one, the only, your assistant medical director, Dr. Matt Chin. Hello. <laughs> With all the enthusiasm in the world, excited to be here as always. I uh, thank everybody for tuning in. Uh, those that are listening live were able to get in, uh, in the invitation And to those that are going to be listening here in the near future, either on our Podbean site or for those that have not heard, have not seen yet, we are now available on iTunes. Things are now hooked up, synced up, talking nicely. So for those Apple users out there, iTunes is now an option for you for this podcast. So today, uh, we've had a theme. It's been the theme for everybody. And we're back on it once again, talking COVID-19 coronavirus. And today, specifically, uh, we're going to kind of deep dive into the discussion of some of the pathophysiology of the virus, what's happening within the airways, within the respiratory system, uh, as well as take a look at, you know, the rationale, some of the reasoning uh, behind some of the updates to area management changes. Uh, in those number of notices that you've seen come out. I do not have a large number of updates for you other than uh, Dan Pojar was supposed to be here today. And he is currently having a baby. Well, his wife's having a baby. He's there for moral support, I will assume. Uh, so good luck to Dan and the Pojar family uh, with that. Unless anybody has anything dramatic for... Any updates from the office? We will carry right on. Uh, so I'm gonna grab Dr. Chin and have him kind of give us a rundown of some of the pathophys, what's going on with the virus? How's it affecting our airways? Uh, what should we be worried about? Or why are we seeing this big need for, you know? and, and we've seen it from day one, these announcements as we're tracking ICU beds, we're tracking ventilators uh, and advanced air management support for those that are fairly symptomatic with the disease. Uh, what's going on within the body when that happens?
2: Yeah, thanks, Jeff, for the uh, introduction there. So um, I was asked uh, and we're gonna give a little bit of a, an introduction into um, COVID-19 uh, in terms of what it does to the body and why we see all these airway um, issues related to that. I'm going to defer to my colleagues, Dr. Engel and Sinclair, to kind of discuss specifics in the number notice uh, where we address some of the clinical concerns with this. But I wanted to give you guys a good foundation in terms of understanding why this uh, virus in particular affects the airways. Um, so as you guys know, um, coronavirus is a, is a group or a family of uh, viruses, uh, some of which are widely distributed and are, are commonly um, seen to cause the common cold. Um, two viruses in particular previous to the current COVID-19 have been implicated um, for causing uh, you know, epidemics across the world with uh, increased mortality, those being SARS and MERS. Um, this is another virus that's in that same type of family. And so basically what happens with a virus is it binds to what's called an angiotensin converting enzyme to receptor. So that's a fancy way of saying there's a protein on the cells in many parts of your body, in particular, the lungs, um, where this virus binds to that protein and it actually crosses into the cell via that protein. And so normally that receptor is used to bind other things. And in this case, the virus uses it. As basically a pathway to get into this cell. And so, again, that pathway is the ACE2 receptor. So, some of you have heard about this because we use medications that um, work on these types of cells when they're in the vascular system to manage blood pressure. So, um, some of our ACE inhibitor medications use this same pathway on blood vessels to cause um, vasodilation and and cause some uh, and treat uh, hypertension. So in this case, this same virus uses that same receptor and actually gets into the cell and then causes damage. In particular, um, these uh, proteins or this transmembrane protein is in the lungs, which is where we see it cause most of the damage. And this is the same method with which SARS um, worked and originally as well. Uh, and so this is kind of something we've been um, studying and looking into in terms of ways to manage this disease. So basically, what happens is the virus um, uses that protein to get inside of the cell. It results in endocytosis and translocation. So the virus goes from outside to inside the cell, um, and it goes into specifically the endosomes within the cell. The cells that we care about are those type 2 cells that are in the lungs, basically. And those cells in the lungs that this virus can get inside of and damage, produce something called surfactant. And you guys have probably heard about this in classes before um, in regards to infants who need surfactant to kind of get their lungs to open up and and manage the surface tension there. And it does the same thing in adults. It helps keep our alveoli open, allows us to breathe, prevents our lungs from collapsing, and allows us to have that oxygen transfer that we need. And so what happens with this virus is it gets into those cells in the lungs that produce surfactant and it causes damage to those cells. They're no longer able to produce that surfactant, therefore the alveoli kind of collapse, they're not able to oxygenate, and that's why we see a significant amount of lung damage from the virus. So direct damage from the lungs, as this virus basically infiltrates into these cells that are needed for us to do our normal functions of breathing and stuff. Um, These cells also, again, by producing surfactant, and increased pulmonary compliance, they prevent atelectasis, which is, again, is that collapse of the lung, and they help to facilitate kind of recruitment of those collapsed airways. So by damaging these cells, we basically um, are not able to do many of those things, and hence we see a significant amount of respiratory compromise. We see hypoxia. We see tachypnea and respiratory distress. Um, So all those types of things are um, worsened when this virus enters into those cells. The predominant effects of the virus we see again are hypoxemic respiratory failure. So we see as those surfactant levels uh, decrease because the cells that produce them are damaged by the virus, we have a lot more um, atelectasis and lung collapse. We also know that there's an inflammatory reaction that occurs because of this, um, and that causes damage as well. Uh, we know that uh, this virus can affect these uh, particular proteins and they're not just in the lungs they're also in the vasculature so we've seen um, patients with COVID-19 have significant issues with having hypercoagulability Um, so we've seen patients having neurologic problems from strokes and blood clots because this same virus is entering the cells through this same protein in our endothelium and causing us to have increased coagulation and therefore having clots and strokes. So we see a lot of manifestations of the disease outside of just the lung pathology, which we're all most familiar with and which we certainly have a significant amount of respect for the damage the virus can cause, but it can also cause damage in other places where these same proteins in this same ability to cause damage to cells exist as well. So that again, uh, can occur in the blood vessels, it can occur in stomach uh, and other types of cells that have the same protein. So um, as we kind of continue to manage this, much of our management strategies are really trying to treat uh, in particular, the respiratory failure that we get from this by the mechanisms we described uh, above with really damage to the cells that produce surfactant and help us, you know, oxygenate on a daily basis. Um, so that's kind of the the very brief synopsis of how these viruses can damage our, our ability to breathe, basically.
0: Uh, thanks, Dr. Chin. So definitely as we're going through this, uh, airway management's key, uh, maintaining those open patent airways, uh, helping ventilate those patients as necessary uh, out the field until we can get them into the EDs uh, and get them into an ICU or treated appropriately, uh, based on those physician teams at the hospitals. Uh, So as we are seeing these patients, transporting these patients, uh, interacting with them uh, varying levels of illness, I know uh, there's a lot to worry about. And certainly, you know, as a provider in the field, you know, our, our desire not to contract this illness is high as well. Uh, So I'm going to grab Linda, and I know there's a couple things uh, within the QA team that we're really sort of tracking uh, things that we're looking for in the documentation on on these calls with uh, any even just potential COVID or infectious disease patients. Linda, did you want to touch on those a little bit?
1: Uh, Yes, thank you, Jeff. Um, Because PPE is so important with COVID along with other Infectious um, diseases. Uh, and with COVID, we're actively providing notification to agencies when an EMS encounter has occurred. Um, we, we definitely want to encourage our providers to accurately document uh, two things. One is the role of each provider uh, during the EMS encounter, the contact versus no contact. Uh, if you are within six feet, if you, you know, um, did a procedure uh, with the patient if you touched the patient versus you you stayed in the you weren't needed. That's really important. And the second thing is accurately documenting the level of PPE worn by each provider. This is extremely important um, because as we review positive cases that are reported um, to the state, we um, search EMS encounters with that patient, and we notify fire department liaisons as soon as we can that there was an encounter. All that information in the report allows them to review the encounter, um, confirm that um, proper PPE was used and there's no exposure risk. And if there is, then they can reach out to the member and if needed, um, go through the quarantine procedure. So it's very, very important.
0: Correct me if I'm wrong, but this is extending out to pretty much anybody that responds to that scene. We'd like to see that documentation. So if there's an engine crew out there or somebody that went out that maybe didn't even make contact, just a quick note saying, you know, this engine was there on this date, no patient contact made, they stayed in the truck.
1: Absolutely. Uh, Contact and no contact, both are important to document.
0: Excellent. So just friendly reminders out there. So yeah, so we can get that information out to the departments who may or may not have been in contact with a potentially infected patient or a known uh, infected patient Uh, documentation is the key. Now I do know we've had throughout the last couple weeks of this whole crisis going on a number of we'll say unique cases come through the CQIP process. Uh, So Linda, I'm going to grab you to kind of run down these and uh, Dr. Engel, Dr. Sinclair uh, anytime you you know what if you've got some good information to add anytime you want to jump in to kind of discuss some of the treatment modalities uh, changes as we've gone through on the number notice uh, feel free if it's pertinent to that case. Uh, so Linda I will let you take away it looks like case 670 is the start here.
1: Yes excellent I um, there are two particular cases that stood out. Um, of uh, of a a handful that we've we've received that are related to COVID. Um, In this this first case, um, one of our paramedic units transported a patient. that was a 40-year-old female uh, with asthma. She also had signs and symptoms of COVID. Um, And this crew did a a great job treating this patient. They put the patient on CPAP. They delivered the Duoneb in line. They gave uh, uh, dexamethasone as well. They appropriately uh, notified EMS com and they even called the charge nurse. The nurse. Um, their uh, report included information that the patient had trouble breathing and chest pain. She had audible wheezing. Uh, she was un- unable to talk in complete sentences. Um, she had called 911 twice before and they had to intubate her in the past. Um, she had a 12-lead ECG, she was put on end title and she was on CPAP with a PEEP of five. Um, she, uh, she said to the crew that this was the, the worst trouble breathing that she had ever experienced. Um, and her condition remained the same during transport. So when the crew arrived at the hospital, in this case, they actually followed the crew's or the uh, hospital's request to um, take the patient off of CPAP. They put her on a surgical mask. Um, they complied with those requests. They'd done everything right. And when they got to the room, the uh, physician in the room made the comment to the crew that, that, kind of, um, that they reported to us um, that basically was, why are you guys doing any aerosol treatments? You're just spreading this all over the place. That was our first case, and the crew was, you know, was uh, kind of upset at that type of reaction, especially when they made they they did everything they could for this patient, and they complied with instructions.
0: Absolutely, and that's you know that's uh, an important part, and one of those discussions that's certainly been had in the office, and I'll grab the docs here for this one, uh, the use of these airway adjuncts. CPAP and some of the more invasive procedures um still doing that not doing that it, you know certainly if we're catching flack from the hospitals um about using it what's our best approach I think I don't know if that's, uh, Dr. I think,
3: uh, yeah I think Dr. Chin's going to be uh, talking to first about how we manage moving into the uh for a patient who is having these aerosols generalizing procedures uh moving into the hospital setting there. Doctor Chen, do you have a comment on that?
2: Yeah, so uh, when we talk about the transition of patients from an EMS uh, apparatus into a facility, uh, it sounds like everything was done correctly in this case. So we relayed the fact that we were performing an aerosol generating procedure to the hospital facility. Um, to the best of our ability, we complied with their particular requests. Now, what I would have to say moving forward is, and, and Dr. Engel and Dr. Sinclair will kind of address the use of those um, procedures in the pre-hospital setting, is that um, we're obviously, you guys are an advocate for the patient. So, you know, we're, um, while we, they'll discuss kind of in particular the, the limitations of, of trying to limit those procedures in the pre-hospital setting for those particular reasons they'll address, we still advocate for the best patient care. And so that 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 transition of care through EMS Comm, through the hospital, discussing with the charge nurse if available and having a direct conversation with them about the critical nature of a patient is very, very important. Um, because we, we don't want you to do is sacrifice patient care um, for something that can be managed um, uh, better on, on both ends of that. And so if if the required procedure is something that needs to be performed um, to save that patient, uh, that, that critically ill patient, then we want you to be able to continue that in the safest manner possible. Um, the hospital's uh, reasoning behind those particular procedures uh, and making sure that they have a good uh, heads up about those procedures being performed prior to arrival is because of the risk for contamination of their uh, facilities and their staff. So while everyone in the ambulance is wearing the appropriate PPE for those procedures, um, so wearing N95 masks for a higher level respirator when performing any of those procedures, the people who are standing in the hallways of the hospital, um, their uh, ancillary staff, um, their hucks or, you know, techs or other nurses and physician staff who are in the hallways may not be wearing that appropriate level of PPE. Uh, Maybe just wearing a simple face mask or other face covering. And so they're not adequately protected against one of those aerosol generating procedures. So that's why we ask that if you, uh, that you have, uh, you know, as best as we can through our EMSCOM um, radio transmission, a, a heads up for those facilities so they can prepare and accurately guide the the receiving um, ambulance into the best way to receive that patient that's both safe for the patient and safe for the staff there. So while this is is an incredibly complex um, discussion in terms of how to to transition someone from the ambulance into a a room at a facility, uh, it's something that we know you guys uh, excel with in terms of flexibility And we also know that you have the skills to adequately manage this patient and and the resources to manage this patient uh, safely to do so. And so we would always um, stand behind the decision that's made that's in the best interest of the patient um, that allows the facility to have the best um, warning that your arrival is is impending and to make preparations on their end. Some facilities, for instance, may uh, allow you to continue those procedures So, so long as you utilize a viral filter or they will provide you a filter to try to limit spread of those uh, of that nebulized or otherwise aerosol generating procedure in their uh, facilities. Um, but we just ask for some flexibility in this time. We will be meeting with those facilities to kind of discuss best practices in terms of transitioning patients from the ambulance into the uh, inpatient settings.
0: Perfect, thanks Dr. Chin. Uh, before I let uh, Dr. Engel and Dr. Sinclair kind of di- deep dive into some stuff, uh, Linda looks like you had one other case a kind of similar situation.
1: Yeah, why well, don't I go over this one and then um, I think we can uh, talk about uh, the additional comments in general. So this case is is similar in that the patient was having difficulty breathing. Um, this was a 93-year-old patient who had had acute onset. Um, the report describes the patient as having, you know, being tachycardic with a heart rate of 128 and respiratory rate was 24. When the crew arrived on scene, when the med unit got on scene, The patient had some improvement already with high flow O2 by the first arriving company, the SAT was in the low 90s. Patient had a history of COPD. Um, They started a CPAP treatment and the patient commented that he felt a lot better after that treatment. So the crew um, transported to the hospital. Uh, When they got there, they were asked to discontinue the CPAP treatment and they refused. Um, so ironically, I received a second recent case with this same crew that refused again. And the staff of course was concerned that they may have, um, that may have caused an unnecessary exposure. And of course they're concerned about, um, their requests for how patients are brought in and have treatments discontinued and our providers complying with that request. So slightly different, a few other concerns. There was no mention of HEPA filter um, in the uh, page.
0: Exactly, yeah, so just to really reiterate uh, what Dr. Chin had to say is, you know, now as we're experiencing more and more of these cases, uh, good communication with EMS com, good communication with the hospitals, let them know what your situation is coming in uh, so they're able to prepare as best as they're able to route that patient through the hospital, and if they need to make those adjustments to help protect uh, tertiary people that might be in the vicinity of, you know, moving that patient into a room, we'll um, work with the hospitals on, on making that as seamless of a process as possible.
3: Yeah. Hey Jeff, one of the things that uh, we were talking mentioning earlier would be considering uh, the HEPA filter as we transition this patient into the hospital, or making sure the HEPA filter is. On any of the advanced airway equipment, such as the CPAP, the air, uh, the supraglottic or intubation, the uh, BVM, and I think uh, Pat was hoping to tell us a little bit about the HEPA filter and kind of why we added it into the algorithm and kind of what it does here. Pat, sure. do you have a couple of seconds to talk about HEPA
2: filter?
1: Hold
4: on. Oh, there we go. Sorry, that was, about that. That was unmuted. That. There we <laughs> go. Good. So yeah, I mean, so one of the things first and foremost is in the CDC guidelines, uh, CDC does recommend using a HEPA filter on BVMs and other ventilatory equipment when it's possible. Um, So this is specifically designed to kind of minimize the aerosolation and mitigate any exposures to crews or anybody else. So this is definitely something that's showed up in our number notice as well. Anecdotally, I think we've also had maybe a few cases where um, it's been tough to read the end-tidal CO2 readings um, when the HEPA filter is in place. And actually, just making sure that the end tidal CO2 uh, is closer to the patient in your stack will mitigate this. You should still be able to read it okay. But if you're having problems there, a lot of that may have to do with the HEPA filter. But we do definitely advise that, and it is part of the CDC guidelines uh, to be used in the pre hospital setting as well as the hospital setting. So,
0: perfect. I know a skill sheet did just go out with the application of those for those HEPA filters. Any uh, of the docs jump in? If I misspeak here, but yeah, they should be as close to the patient as possible. Really with the exception of an ITD if you're running uh, a cardiac arrest call with a mechanical CPR. Right. So Yeah, sounds right. Airway, ITD, then the HEPA filter before anything else uh, in line. will keep everybody uh, a little bit safer, make th- make sure things that are flowing well. Uh, also an important thing to note too is just make sure you're mentioning that to EMS com. Uh, if you do have an advanced area procedure in place, whether it be uh, CPAP or, you know, an adjunct in place, uh, letting them know for sure that you have this running and whether or not that you have the filter. Uh, if, you, if you don't have one on your service yet, that's okay. Just let EMS com know that you don't have one in place. Uh, some of the hospitals are adjusting sort of some of their procedures uh if they need to bring one out or make sure that there's something in place before they come into the ed uh, those are there so again good communication so along with the hepa filter changes there's certainly been a bunch of things in the number of notices uh, and especially in terms of how we're approaching treating some of these patients uh, with respiratory illnesses with uh need for some maybe more advanced Interventions or some aerosolized medications. Uh, Dr. Engel, I know you have quite a bit to say on the topic, uh, so I'm going to kind of let you dive right into uh, what are some strategies we're approaching. I know certainly, you know, nebulized albuterol, atrovant, those duonebs have been kind of a hot button topic at the moment.
3: Yeah, thanks, Jeff. You're absolutely right. The nebulized albuterol stuff uh, is really the hot button topic. But moving back a little bit, I just want to once again emphasize what Dr. Chin mentioned earlier about, you know, um, while we've reorganized the way we approach a patient in respiratory distress, specifically from bronchospasm or suspected bronchospasm, that doesn't mean that the reorganization means you can't do those life-saving interventions that we used to do that can cause aerosolized generation of the virus. Um, you have the proper protective equipment, specifically the N95. That will allow you to be safe while performing these procedures and if the patient at all needs this because you think they're going to decompensate specifically to have a respiratory arrest. You should be performing these procedures. So I just want to make sure that we all are on the same page that even though we reorganized, the life saving interventions of high flow oxygen, CPAP, airway management that Dr. Sinclair is going to talk about as well as nebulization are still within your purview of, of performance to make sure these patients don't get a little bit worse we can always worry about what we do when we move the patient from the ambulance bay into the uh, patient room in the emergency department. But in the pre-hospital study, you can do all of those things. So kind of moving into how we reorganize this. So thinking about uh, a lot of the management is based off of management of bronchospasm. So first you have to correctly identify bronchospasm. And typically these patients are identified people who have clear wheezes on hospital um, They have difficulty with exhalation or people who have an MDI and they're not getting better on their MDI when they normally are. Most of these patients are going to have what's called reactive airway disease. This typically includes patients who have asthma or COPD, but some of them will not. Um, So I just also want to remember that when we're thinking about bronchospasm and wheezy, not everything that wheezes is uh, from specifically bronchospasm. There's heart failure, acute coronary syndrome, pulmonary embolus, anaphylaxis, obstruction of the upper airway. Um, All of those things can make it seem like they might have bronchospasm, but I want you to always remember that if somebody's having respiratory distress, to always consider your other... Um, possible differentials as if you identify the other differential and you think it's more likely that, you don't even need to worry about treating the underlying bronchospasm. For instance, if you just, if they're having respiratory distress from heart failure, maybe we'd be moving down towards nitroglycerin in these people and avoiding having to do any of those other procedures that we know increase the aerosolization of the virus. Then remembering if you're going down the bronchospasm pathway that, you know, supplemental oxygen at less than six liters doesn't aerosolize, and basic airway management steps are going to be your first thing. Um, to considering these people. But as we would like to do uh, nebulized therapy, uh, unfortunately, that like I keep saying, that is aerosolizing the virus and makes it slightly more dangerous for anybody around. So one of the things we moved to was considering the use of it, the patient's MDI. Um, so the, An MDI is a metered dose inhaler with a spacer. Um, and a lot of these patients who have reactive airway diseases have their MDI or their albuterol inhaler at home. So if you arrive to these people and they're in not immediate distress, but they look like they're relatively ill, and you would be considering using a nebulizer. One of the first things you can do is ask the patient if they have their MDI. We uh, ask that when you uh, they pull out their albuterol inhaler, you take a quick look at it, make sure it's theirs, make sure it's an albuterol. Very similar to what you do with a medication cross check before you have the patient administer it. And um, you know our normal nebulization that we're doing in the prehospital setting are dual nebs, which consists of albuterol and ipotropium in the nebulizer um and you know while it's ideal to get therapy to use both the beta agonist and the albuterol as well as the anticholinergic in the um we really know the beta agonist of the albuterol is really going to be our biggest bang for our buck so our typical duoneb uh, dosing is 2.5 milligrams of albuterol when you equate 2.5 milligrams of nebulized albuterol that comes out to somewhere between four to eight puffs of a mdi or an albuterol inhaler we kind of landed on five puffs as being the Um, best answer as most data shows that about five puffs of albuterol inhaler, specifically with a spacer gets you to about 2.5 milligrams of albuterol now you got to remember there is a way to use an inhaler so the correct way to really use an inhaler is you take it you want to shake it up take the cap off and then you want to stick the inhaler into the spacer you want to have the patient blow out all the air out of their lungs put their mouth around either the spacer or the inhaler and have them take a nice deep breath in and hold it for 10 seconds What you can do is you can do five of these puffs, which should take you about two and a half minutes as you want about 20 or 30 seconds in between each puff. Um, And you would do this uh, those five puffs every 20 minutes up to three doses. So that is our amount. We're doing basically five puffs every 20 minutes up to three doses of an albuterol inhaler. And now I wanna kind of just really quickly stress about how important this spacer is. We really hope that all patients have a spacer at home um, the spacer's real, import, uh, real utilization is it can increase the amount of albuterol from the inhaler getting into the patient's lungs from about 60% up to 90 to 95%. And what it does is it allows some of that albuterol to kind of get into the spacer, and then when the patient inhales it, it actually goes into their lungs as opposed to getting into the back of their mouth. Um, so really, if the patient has a spacer, it can markedly increase the efficacy of the underlying inhaler that they're using. Um, So I want you to remember, you know, if they're failing on their inhaler or if the patient can't use an inhaler because there's so so much respiratory distress, we would obviously recommend that you can, if you felt you could go to a nebulizer as long as you are wearing your N95. And then some providers have asked me over the last couple of weeks the months, why don't we just all carry uh, MDIs on the rig? It's really more of a supply chain issue at this point. It's hard to kind of get them all um, sent out to all of our ambulances and uh, all the different departments have a little bit of a difficult time acquiring these as we are in the emergency department. The last thing to remember with the use of inhalers is that Um, Even if you don't, if you have a patient who has some respiratory distress and you don't feel they require any treatment from an inhaler while you're evaluating them, it'd be great if you could have them bring them into the hospital for us as we often end up, maybe the patient gets worse and they end up needing it here while they're in the hospital. Um, Jeff, does that kind of answer some of the questions we have about why we're using inhalers and how we're kind of using them in place of the nebulizer?
0: Yeah, and just to clarify though, if you have a patient significant wheezing, that asthmatic patient doesn't have access to their inhaler we should or should not still be using a, our own nebulizer if we have the appropriate ppe
3: yeah that's a good point you know if you think that this patient is at high risk of decompensation because of that current wheezing, and they do not have access to their home mdi or inhaler um then you should absolutely be moving forward with nebulized uh duo as we would before But if you felt that this patient had some wheezing, they were stable with relatively stable vitals, you didn't think that they were going to decompensate on the way to the hospital, it would be reasonable to move through some of the other steps that we've listed in the number notice prior to starting um, uh, albuterol nebulization.
0: Okay, excellent. So yeah, work through your steps, but yeah, if it's going to be best for the patient and they're going to decompensate significantly, then we can if necessary.
3: Absolutely, absolutely. And I'll be honest, you know, um, hopefully in the next couple of minutes, I'll be able to talk about some of the other steps that we've listed in the number notice. But there are going to be patients that are going to have some wheezing, that are going to be hemodynamically stable, where it might be reasonable in these scenarios for EMS to do very minimal for these people. Um, We recommend some of the other stuff, such as steroids and epinephrine, that we're going to talk about if they're getting relatively ill. But it is okay in these scenarios if the patient does not have their home inhaler, is not very ill, looks very stable that EMS does very little and does stable transport with vital signs monitoring um, on the way to the hospital for these people.
0: Terrific, and yeah, and since you brought it up, I might as well let you just keep, you're on a good roll here. uh, If you wanna talk about some of those steroids and some of those alternative options to, you know, a will inhaler or lack of MDI and some other things that we can do for them.
3: Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, the next thing we kind of have listed on there down your algorithm is you can't really use a patient's MDI is really the consideration of use of steroids. Now, you know, our, our has really held steroids or had steroids available for, for years. Um, so you all should be pretty familiar with dexamethasone that you carry, but I want to kind of talk to you about why we consider it in that, uh, these reactive airway patients. So, you know, in severe cases, we are really trying to progress the use of steroids prior to nebulizers if possible. Um, So if you think a patient is going to get really sick without a nebulizer or other airway management, you should obviously go ahead and do the nebulizer and the airway management. But if you think you have a little bit of time, you should consider steroids. Now, the reason we have steroids such as dexamethasone in our arsenal for these people for treating specific bronchospasm is that when patients have reactive airway disease that is stimulated possibly by COVID-19, they have underlying increased inflammation um, and swelling in their small airways. Uh, Steroids work really, really well for decreasing inflammation. Um, Unfortunately, you know, steroids don't work horribly quickly. They tend to take hours to really start working, but that doesn't mean that they don't have a significant impact on the patient's overall outcome. And just so I want you to remember, you know, not everything that you do in the pre-hospital setting, you're able to see an immediate effect. We like nebulizers because we're able to see immediately the patient's getting better. We like IV fluids because it immediately raises the blood pressure. But at the same time, you also do things such as give aspirin in patients with possible acute coronary syndrome. And that doesn't help them right then, but it does help them their long-term outcome. So we do a lot of stuff that influences long-term outcome and steroids is one of those things. So our current dose of dexamethasone is 0.5 milligrams per kilogram to a max of 16 milligrams. We typically give it as a slow IV or IO push over three to five minutes. Um, You can also give this IM or PO Um, PO being a great route for pediatric patients as they tend to not like needles, which I'm sure you all remember. And when you give it IM, it's typically given as a nice big bolus. So here's some data about why steroids can be beneficial in patients with reactive airway disease stimulated by possibly coronavirus. First, like I said, they don't really work right away, but most of the studies show that early steroid administration can reduce hospital admission, repeat exacerbations, of the patient who's having the reactive airway disease problem. And in kids, it can get them home from the emergency department much faster and prevent prevent their admission to the hospital. The more severe an exacerbation is, the more likely steroids are to influence the patient's outcome. And when I was talking about all the different routes that we can get steroids over, it doesn't really matter whether it's oral, IV, or IM, or even I.O. in the sicker patients, if they're really, really ill and their bot and their gut isn't working, these are people who look like they're on death's doorstep. That IV route is going to be more important as they won't absorb it, PO. Uh, but for most patients, the route doesn't really typically matter. Um, so basically what I'm and then the last thing is, you know, there was some data coming out that in the setting of having COVID-19, um, some of these patients can progress to that severe lung injury that Dr. Chin was talking about. Um, so people were concerned because in that severe lung injury, the thought was maybe steroids might make the patient worse. Well, the Infectious Disease Society of America basically says that if you have a patient who has severe respiratory distress with bronchospasm and underlying reactive airway disease, such as those asthmatics and those COPDers, you are okay in going ahead to give them steroids because it's safe, efficacious, and likely improves their outcome. Um, and just so you know, you know, I went and confirmed this with the pediatric uh, team at Children's Hospital, of Wisconsin, and they are still using uh, steroids in their pediatric patients with bronchospasm who may or may not have coronavirus so it's it's well It is still indicated in these people. Does that kind of make some sense Jeff? Do you have any questions about the steroid use in uh possible COVID patients with bronchospasm? Uh, no,
0: there's are some really great points Dr. Engel. Uh, and one of, th- one of the things that I really wanted to reemphasize is that uh, and a nice point that you made was that we don't always want to focus on the immediate fix for the patient and be able to think long term uh, through their entire course of medical treatment, uh, is going to be beneficial for that patient. So getting those steroids on board, even though you know we won't see them in those short-term transports uh, to the ED, if we if we can save them some time, some uh, some suffering, sitting in the hospital waiting for things to happen, uh, that's always going
3: to be beneficial for them. Yeah. And you know, there were some good studies done out in New York in the early 2000s that basically showed there was some benefit if EMS providers provided dexamethasone or any other steroid in these reactive airway patients. So we have some good data. that This is a reasonable thing to consider. It, it, that, yeah, that's terrific and definitely something we should be
0: looking at doing, and not even with only with these COVID patients, but again, continuing on uh, post-COVID era and into any of those with reactive airway diseases. Certainly something that we can get on board and be using regularly.
3: And, you know the the other medication that we could talk about if you're okay with just jumping through um the next big change that we put on to the the number notice for moving our uh, adjusting our algorithm a little bit um would be the consideration of uh intramuscular epinephrine for these people is that okay if i spend one minute talking about that absolutely head on in yeah so you know basically if you're trying we as we're saying you all we are trying to avoid the use of uh, aerosolized generating procedures if we really can in these people so we're trying to provide other options to see if we can avoid having to use any of those things. And one of the you know, rapid corrections for people with underlying bronchospasm um, who are really ill can be the use of epinephrine. Um, you know, so epinephrine has a beta agonist effect that's uh, identical to albuterol, just in a different route. And in the setting of those really sick people with bronchospasm, we know that nebulized albuterol even or MDI albuterol isn't getting into those small airways because they're so constricted. Um, So giving intramuscular epinephrine can provide systemic or uh, beta agonist effect throughout the entire body. You know, it's really most beneficial in patients who have underlying asthma, but does have some data in working in patients with COPD. Um, It's shown to be a rescue medication, and it has shown to decrease the need for intubation and further intensive care stays in some studies in patients who are really, really ill with bronchospasm. Um, Our countywide protocol has a dose um, that is identical to the anaphylaxis dose. So it's 0.15 milligrams for patients less than 30 kilograms and 0.3 milligrams for patients over 30 kilograms given IM and that's the one to 1000 formulation. Um, The good thing about epi over um, dexamethasone is epi should act pretty quick within a minute or two. Um, So you should start seeing some effects really quick, which I know we really like in those really sick people trying to turn them around. Um, There was some data in the past where people got concerned about, you know, giving epi to patients who are really old, who might have underlying coronary uh, cardiac risk factors. And, you know, uh, in studies that used IM epi in patients with anaphylaxis who were elderly, it didn't really seem to show any increased risk of cardiovascular complications. So I would say that it's still pretty safe if a patient is sick with bronchospasm, even if they're old and possibly have COPD and you're like, well, maybe they have coronary artery risk factors. It's still safe to go ahead and give them the IM epi um, before you're considering start the nebulized therapy um, because it might turn them around so you then don't have to aerosolize any of this virus. So I guess, you know, if I to kind of summarize the use of how we're changing this up, you should be trying to use the patient's MDI with a spacer if at all possible. Um, if they're getting pretty sick on you, uh, you can. I would go ahead and give them the intramuscular epinephrine, specifically if they have asthma. Uh, if they have COPD, it is reasonable still as well. Um, it would be great if you can get the steroids on board, but if that patient continues to decompensate in front of you, you are afraid that they're gonna get worse, go ahead and do any of those other aerosolized generating procedures, oxygen, CPAP, albuterol, MEB. Um, As long as you're wearing your N95 and don and doff correctly, that is very reasonable in these scenarios.
0: Well, that's a lot of great information, uh, really good treatment modalities um, and not a really dramatic change from what we had been doing um, aside from the use of the patient's MDI, uh, which is not something that was would be considered typical in the in the pre-hospital setting, but certainly in these times, certainly something worth considering if the patient, if you have access to one. <coughs> the question then becomes, as we go through this and we're treating this patient, and we're going down our medication lists, and we're treating with everything that we've got and eventually we lose that airway, I know there's been some concern and some changes to how we're progressing from conscious awake patient who's receiving CPAP or medications into, okay, now I need to take this airway uh, because I no longer have a gag reflex, I no longer have someone in place. Certainly we have the option as always between ET tubes and and supraglottics, but I do believe certainly in the number of notice that there was an opinion and I'll let Dr. Sinclair kind of touch on that uh, bit on which route we should be angling down
4: yeah thanks a lot jeff and that was that was an awesome job by dr engel and so yeah i mean, when all else fails i mean first and foremost you want to maximize your medical management uh, to the best of your ability as we just discussed but when all else fails the way we were going with the numbered notice on this is that we'd want you to have to go with a superglottic airway so a king tube and for most of most of the uh, agencies in the system um part part of the reason for this is actually just taking uh data and information that well, we have from the great airway debate that's been going on for now several years within EMS. Um, you know, you look at the part trial, you look at the uh, Airways Two trial, and you know that a supraglottic airway, uh, based on the data, uh, one has a much higher first pass success rate, and two uh, is actually um, a little quicker to be getting getting that in. Um, so, in the process of these mechanisms themselves. Um, It actually then mitigates or minimizes the effect of an aerosolizing procedure and putting crews at risk at this point. So that's part of of the data that we're looking at that makes that change is what is the easiest way to take this airway uh that doesn't create an aerosolizing generating procedure right you're in- intubating someone with a video laryngoscope or you know and you, you tend to be a lot closer to the patient you have to take a little bit more time with that patient um, they're getting sicker on you a lot quicker um, you can you risk also a lot more secretions and aerosolization because it's a longer procedure so that's kind of way we favor supraglottic airways in this case and this has kind of been borne out by some of the case studies and data that we are pulling out of this COVID response. Um, Furthermore, some of the other stuff that's been going on more in the hospital setting is that endotracheal intubation has been shown to actually uh, patients tend to do COVID, positive patients tend to do a little bit worse. Um, And again, those those are studies that are still um, bearing out, but that's so far what we're seeing. So we are trying to avoid at all costs having to intubate the patient and you maximize your medical management. Of course, Um, if that all else fails, we'd rather you go with a superglottic device because that's going to be a lot safer and minimize all that, that aerosolizing, uh, procedures based on the data that we've seen so far. Uh, does that help you with the question?
0: Absolutely. It probably keeps your face a little further away from theirs too. Definitely. Definitely does. Excellent. Thanks so much. Uh, one other thing to note, especially going back to Dr. Engel's, uh, discussion on the use of a patient's, uh, own MDI, uh, Make sure you're fur back and just keep that good practice of using the medication cross list, cross check, uh, in in place. And and you're working with your crew members. They're not all inhalers are created equal. They might not all contain albuterol. So making sure you're doing a good check of actually what you're giving that patient, what's in there uh, before we start administering some medications to folks. And look at that, we are right on time for the day. I will open the floor if anybody has anything else they'd like to add, any notes on COVID or anything else to feel we should discuss. Hearing nothing from the floor, I will call episode three of Pushdose EMS to a conclusion. I wanna thank everybody for joining me today. It was a great discussion on a lot of good topics And to everybody listening out there in EMS land, uh, stay safe, have a good evening.